Turn with me, if you would, to Acts 20. Continue standing if you're able. 38 verses today in Acts 20. Beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room and where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day to Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears." 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of God. Father, we pray that in this your word we would see wonderful things. Lord, this is only a work that you can do. We can't intend to see it on our own. I can't intend to make it seen on my own. We are all dependent on your Spirit's power to work among us today in the preaching of your word. And so we pray that you would work mightily to open our eyes and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, you saw the title of the sermon of Staying Awake, and I'm sure many jokes have been made from this text um, for poor Eutychus who fell from the window. And it's only comical and a little, well, it's a little comical. It's sad and, and then happy because he died, but then he was brought back to life. The thing is, we can all identify with Eutychus, if we're honest, I think. I don't know of anyone who hasn't struggled to stay awake at some point in a sermon. Um, you know, I'm looking at you, so I notice that some days that's, it's hard, you know. And it's kind of a perfect recipe for that when you think about it. And you know, we ate breakfast a while ago. We're all thinking about lunch. The building warms up a little bit when we all get in here. You know, there's a little less oxygen. It's almost a perfect recipe for a nap. So we really have to work to stay awake. If you've ever been behind a wheel of a car, you know this can be work to stay awake. Or if you've ever tried reading when you're really tired, you know the weight of your eyelids, how you can struggle. And there are times when no amount of willpower will keep you awake. I was 16 or 17. I had, uh, we had, it was New Year's Eve. We had been up for a youth lock-in, you know, where you stay up all night. I don't know who. They were fun when I was a kid, but they're not fun anymore. I stayed up the next day. All day I didn't sleep. We were watching college football. And about midnight, I grow and crawl in my bed. I'm exhausted. And my sister comes in and says, Sether, that's what they called me when I was, you know, younger. Would you ride back with Dan to New York? He's got to drive all the way back. In Atlanta, 18 hours to New York. He was, uh, my brother-in-law was finishing his master's degree there. So I crawled back out of bed and said, okay. So I got in. I said, I'll do the first leg and just get us north of Atlanta the first couple hours, and then you've got to take over. I'm exhausted. So I'm driving, and we get about north of Atlanta a couple hours up the road, and I try and wake him up. And he said, just, just one more hour. I tried again about three, just, just one more hour. And he did this to me until 8 a.m. So for eight hours, I did this. The thing that woke me up every time I fell asleep at the wheel was the snow on the side of the road as I would veer into the emergency lane as it would hit the floorboard of the car and flip up. No amount of willpower kept my eyes awake. I knew I was supposed to stay awake. I needed to stay awake. This was kind of an important type of thing, you know, when you're driving down the interstate in a car. But I couldn't stay awake. I was exhausted. And as important as we think about staying awake during a sermon and the preaching of the word is important, 
there are also things that we have to stay awake to in life. And I think that when we look at this today, it's, it's, there's a lot more to this than just simply staying awake. I hope you see that. And particularly as Paul gives this exhortation at the end to these elders, there's this charge to stay awake, stay alert, be on guard, and be ready. Because there are things in this world that lure us to sleep, that distract us, that keep us from thinking about what really matters. And for some of you, it, 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 it goes beyond that because you, you're busy and your lives are just, the pace of life is so exhausting that you struggle to be alert. This is one of the reasons why we need the Sabbath, why we need the preaching of the Word, why we come together to be awoken again to the truth of the gospel. So keep these things in mind as we begin to look now at this text. If you notice in the first few verses, Luke is writing, Paul's been in uh, Ephesus, he's left there, the riot, you remember last week, and Toward verse 6, you see the language change again. These, uh, he goes from talking about they and them to we and us. So Paul is, or uh, Luke rather is joining Paul again. And you'll see, as before, when Luke was a part of the journey, we get a lot more detail of what was happening. And so you'll see that take place as well. Paul was wanting to get back to Jerusalem. And he hints at it in verse 16 that he wanted to get back for Pentecost. And so he is going to make a hurried trip. He's over at Ephesus in Asia. He's going to go across the Aegean Sea to what we consider Europe now and visit quickly. And then he wants to sail back to Syria or Palestine to get back to Jerusalem in time. But as we would expect, another plot from the Jews comes up. We've seen this over and over again. And it seems that with each of these plots, it's, they're either becoming more serious or Paul is taking them more serious. Or we also, as we saw in Ephesus, there are those around Paul who are protecting him. And whatever is the case, they decide it's not a good idea for Paul to get on a ship filled with other Jews who are trying to get back for Passover and Pentecost and so forth in Israel Uh, What an opportunity in the dark of night in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to be thrown overboard and no one see it happening. And so they decide against letting Paul go back by sea. We know from one of his letters, particularly uh, 2 Corinthians, where Paul talked about this time in Macedonia when he went back, that it was a time that was filled, he writes, Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. We don't know any other details on that, but this was a difficult time for Paul, and that's a pattern we see throughout his missionary journeys. But yet, what do we see Paul doing? Encouraging the flock. That Even in the midst of these trials, even in the midst of the fear and the difficulties that he's in, he is continually encouraging, encouraging the church, the flock of Christ. There are different kinds of encouragement that people like to give. You know, the world has encouragement. The world has ideas. They're typically man-centered, though, in their suggestions. They say things like, think positively and things will get better. Right? Or my kids know this one's my favorite. Believe in yourself and you can do anything. Try that with flying. Your attitude, not your aptitude, will determine your altitude. Really? Really? Uh, Victory is always possible for the person who refuses to stop fighting. They may even get religious and say something like, God helps those who help themselves. It's not biblical, by the way. 
Now, I'm all for staying positive and upbeat, and I do think our thoughts inform our attitudes, and our attitudes affect our actions, and we, we, it's, it's not a bad thing to be positive. But we need to determine where our confidence is. We are not our own hope. We are not our own Savior. And no matter how hard we believe it, or fight for it, or never give up on it, it will not make it true. What we, we as believers do need encouragement with is the truth. The truth of the gospel. Because we've said it before, I'll say it again. All of us have gospel amnesia. We forget who we are. We forget our identity. We forget our place before God, our standing before God in Christ. I forget that I'm redeemed, that I'm adopted, that I'm justified. Forget that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I forget that he will finish the work that he started. I forget that I have an inheritance that is worth far more than anything I will ever experience or possess in this life. I forget that these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We forget. These are the truths that I need to be reminded of, that you need to be reminded of. And these, of course, are the words and thoughts of Paul in many of his letters that he was encouraging these churches with, the truth. We need to be awakened to the truth again and again. As the things of this world lull us to sleep, causing us to forget what is true and what is right. And the truth always brings us back to the source of all truth, to God himself. And we find him revealed to us in his word. That's where we find the truth. Well, Paul goes on, he leaves Macedonia, he's there for a few months, takes off and heads over to Troas. He's going to get back to around what is modern-day Turkey, sailing around to get back to Jerusalem. And this is, of course, where Luke comes back in. Luke's been in Philippi, you remember that's where we left him. So Luke has been there encouraging the church there. Paul's time in Troas is going to be very short. Uh, So there's a sense of urgency uh, for him to make the time count, and as well for the believers there. It's hard for us to understand how a a church service could go on this long. Um, It wasn't all day. It was probably started in the evening, but still started at 7, 8 o'clock, most people think, and it went till midnight. That's a long sermon, right, you know? I mean, I usually know when I'm at about 30 minutes because I feel it, and I, some of you guys feel it, I can tell. So there's usually, that's about the, the limit we have. Maybe we could go a little bit longer, but four hours, I don't think so. And poor Eutychus, well, it affects him the worse. The, one of the things that's interesting, in, in, as Paul introduces this, though, is that they were meeting on the first day of the week. This is the first recorded instance where we see Christians meeting on Sunday a pattern that we follow even to this day, a day that would become known as the Lord's Day. For Jews, the Sabbath was Friday at sunset to Saturday at sunset, so their Saturday was their Sabbath, their day of rest. But for Christians, it's on Sunday. Why? Because it's the day that the Lord was raised from the dead. And so the church gathers in Troas on the first day of the week, on Sunday. The word would be preached. There would be the breaking of bread and the breaking of the bread, Uh, We don't get it in English, but in Greek, Luke uses the definite article in verse 11, the bread, so this is communion. So they would have a meal together, but they would also have the Lord's Supper. There would no doubt have been singing and prayer and 
giving and the other elements that we would have as a part of worship. So they gather. Eutychus is there. He's in the overflow seating, so to speak. Um, Maybe because of respect, he gives his seat up to someone else. He's a young guy, sits in the window, falls into a deep sleep, and falls out the window. Three floors down, and it takes his life. Remember, in case you think that he just got the wind knocked out of him, Luke is here, Luke is writing this, Luke is a doctor, Luke would have known if he was dead. He was clearly dead. And Paul takes him and he wraps his arms around him, and God restores life to this young man. Now, there aren't many resurrections in Scripture together. I mean, in the New Testament, there are five beyond Jesus. There were three that Jesus raised from the dead, One for Peter Dorcas, we saw that story back in Acts 8, and then here with Eutychus with Paul. This is not the norm. This is not what God typically does. Of course, you can't put God in a box. He can do this anytime he wants. But some people go looking for these things as if this is the norm, and it just isn't. We do see it in the Old Testament. Uh, Elisha and Elijah both raised one person in a similar way. Uh, it's interesting, they also stretch themselves out, open their arms like Paul did. Uh, we're not sure what all of the meaning behind that is, but each of them, still, it's a rare example. But the example is given to show the power of God, not the power of man. And so for those who go looking for this, either to see this kind of power or to be used in a means as this kind of power, miss the mark. This is not about man. This is about God. Because it shows his power, and it shows him to be true and to be real. Well, the death of Eutychus certainly changed the demeanor of the meeting. From one of a joyful time, Paul's with them, now to this moment of death, to then this reversal again, back to joy, because Eutychus has been raised to life. And they enjoy this time so much that they remain even after the sermon. I mean, you think of a long sermon ending at midnight, what would we do? Well, we'd stumble out of the door and try to keep our eyes open to go home, but yet everybody stays until daybreak. They stay enjoying the fellowship, visiting with Paul, visiting with each other, uh, conversing with one another. And I'm grateful every Sunday that 15 minutes after the service is over, the building's not empty. That we have that same dynamic, that there's fellowship, that people stay and that we enjoy one another's company. I think it's a sign of the health of our church. Even though I'm commenting on it today and I won't be doing it with you, Uh, For your own sake, not for mine, Um, I I miss it uh, when I can't do it. But this fellowship is an important time, and I encourage those who feel like uh, it's hard to talk to people or whatever, grab a cup of coffee, grab a a muffin. Sometimes that makes it easier. But use that time to fellowship. Enjoy that time with one another. Well, Luke says at the end that the resurrection of Eutychus comforted the church a lot. He uses his own little language to say it. We've seen this happen a number of times. He says, not a little. And Luke's done this a number of times that we've seen where he said, not a few. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a negative way of saying a lot. But it's to put emphasis on it, that this really and truly encouraged the church. And it wasn't just about the fact that Eutychus's life was spared, but it was about the fact that Jesus has saved his people and the resurrection of this young man pointed to the final resurrection, our future hope. That was what was uh, truly encouraging for them. 
And then in the end, we see Paul take off from there, from Troas. They keep coming around. Wasn't planning to go to Ephesus. Realized he wanted to, to capture the opportunity of going right by Ephesus. And so he sends word ahead and asks for the elders to come and meet him. And they, he wants to have one final conversation. As we, see, as we saw as we read through it this morning, it's a very heartfelt time. In our day, uh, leadership is talked about quite a bit in all realms, but in the church as well. I think leadership is seen as the pinnacle of achievement. That uh, to be a leader is to be successful. And to be successful in leadership is usually linked to growth numerically, financially, or in terms of impact. And we usually see people who have accomplished growth in these three areas as successful or noble or ideal. That's speaking very generically, culture-wide. But we don't have to look around much or look back in history very far to see that these same measurements of leadership can also be used for great evil. I mean, there are evil people who have been successful financially, numerically, gotten a lot of people to follow them and do things and so forth. So we need to be careful that we don't adopt the world standards of leadership and incorporate these into the church. And let me say that that is happening. It does happen in Christianity. Um, You don't have to look far. I mean, my Facebook feed is filled with advertisements of people who want to sell me books and conferences and coaching and and all these things to, you know, make things grow and to get more money and all this kind of stuff, all in the name of Christ. That's how the world views leadership. Countless books, conferences, and the like. These methods are not where we need to put our focus or our hope. It's not that we can't learn from these things or that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I want us to instead consider the model that Paul sets before us today in his own leadership. As he speaks to these elders, he speaks with a lot of um, emotion. Why, Why is this so emotional for Paul? Paul is realizing that his days are numbered. And you see it in the text. There's an increase not only in the speed of his journey, he's moving much more quickly on this third missionary journey, but there's also an increase in the tenor. He knows that his time is ticking. And I think this happens in life where we become aware of our days are limited. And he also knows that the opportunity to pour into these leaders in these various churches is limited and he wants to make these moments count. Paul was an apostle. Along with the others, 12, they were going to die. The apostolic age would end. And how was God going to make his church work? Through two offices, through an elder, office of elder and office of deacon. And so Paul was wanting to pour into these men to lead Christ's church. It was a continuing ministry of Christ. Christ had appointed his apostles, and now the apostles, as they planted these churches, appointed elders and deacons. And this continues the work of Christ. So what does he focus on? What is the discourse? Well, the first thing he says in verse 19 is, in all humility, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots of Jews. We've talked about humility before. This has come up again, uh, come up before. It's tricky because the minute you start talking about humility or you tell others to be humble like you, you start sounding not so humble, right? Uh, 
Um, it's you know, the, the joke, you know, how the, I've written a book on humility, you know, be humble like me. You know, it, just, it becomes a joke because that's not humility. But I want us to look at how Paul words this, how he explains humility in his exhortation. First, he talks about service. He is serving the Lord. That's who he is. He is a servant of Christ. And proud people simply aren't servants. Proud people can be in a role and called a servant, but they don't really serve genuinely from a pure heart. It takes humility. Paul isn't bragging about his humility, but directing these elders to lead the church to understand the necessity of humility in serving Christ. He talks about humility specifically with all humility. When we consider the leadership roles, the models that we look at in in our culture, we notice that pride is necessary. I mean, this this has been increasing, as uh, at least through through my perspective in my life. We want leaders who are confident, which isn't necessarily the problem. It depends on where their confidence is. But we have come as a culture to crave leaders who are narcissists. It's just become, in my perspective, increasing. That what we tolerate in our leaders is, is ugly because we want leaders who just talk about themselves and think about themselves all the time. We see this across the board. It's crept into the church. And the fallout of this, we see it in the church as well. Instead of leaders who are confident in themselves, we need leaders who are confident in Christ, serving with all humility. And then he said, with tears. With tears he had served. And we're told boys don't cry, and men certainly don't. At least that's a mantra in our culture. And if they do cry, they certainly don't talk about it or write about it, speak about it. But Paul lays his pride down, acknowledging his tears, which is certainly a sign of his humility. He talks about trials, and we've heard about this again and again. He he alludes back to them in his letters more to fill in some of these gaps of what Luke's writing about, that what Paul experienced were trial after trial after trial in these journeys. A thorn in the flesh, literally or figuratively, will keep you humble. While we don't go looking for trouble, we do receive the trials that God brings into our path as his good way of leading us in all humility so that we can lead in all humility. So humility is key. Courage, in verse 20, says, I didn't shrink away from declaring anything that was profitable. Leaders in Christ's church, and really all of us, you know, again, what the world looks at in leadership is that leadership is something that you achieve. And that you're either a leader or you're not, like it's a class system. That's not biblical Christianity. Okay? We certainly have leaders and we have roles in the church. But all of us are called in the Great Commission to make disciples. That is leading people to follow Christ. So all of us are called to leadership in various respects. And we need to learn these principles. These aren't just for the four elders of Christ the King and the deacons. We need words of courage to speak the truth. Words that are profitable, that's what he calls them. These are words of instruction, words of affirmation, words of correction, words of wisdom, words of warning. We could increase that list. We need to speak words of truth into each other's lives. Each of us, all of us need to do this. 
to not shrink away. Sometimes it's hard to do that. The third thing we see is that he was proclaiming the gospel. He says in verse 21, testifying to repentance toward God and faith in Christ Jesus. This was the thrust of all that Paul did. To Jews and to Greeks, no partiality, no other message. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This was Paul's ministry. And finally, not counting his life as valuable beyond God's purposes in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It isn't that Paul despaired of his life or looked down on himself, but he recognized that his life was not his own. His life was a gift. He had been bought back. He had been given his life. And therefore, he was confident in the work of Christ to say, I'll do whatever. I don't count my life as my own. I mean, to say it differently, and he did in Philippians 2, to live as Christ and to die is gain. This is what Paul is saying here. And then building on this foundation that he lays, he completes his exhortation with this announcement, pay attention, stay alert, because wolves are coming. Wolves from without, wolves from within. What do wolves do? Wolves attack. Wolves twist. Wolves corrupt. They lead astray. They consume. They harm. And some would look like wolves. And we see that from time to time in the church. People that don't surprise us. But most of the time, wolves do surprise us. Because wolves are cunning. Wolves are are winsome. They have charismatic personalities and and they often lead people astray, teaching false things, distorting the gospel. So don't think of the threat of wolves as something that was limited to the first century church. We also have to be on alert today. So while I want you to stay awake, not just during the sermon, I don't want anybody falling out of windows. I'm much more concerned of you staying awake as you leave here as you go back in life, that you stay alert, that you stay focused, that we're paying attention, that we remember the truth, who we are, who God is, and what he's called us to. But know this, just like the story of driving that car, that no amount of willpower was going to keep my eyes awake, this isn't about your willpower. It's not about just trying harder. Look at verse 32. This is the hope that Paul leaves the elders with. He says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You are commended to God. You are commended to his grace. And his word, the scriptures which proclaim and instruct the gospel to us, will build us up and strengthen us for the task at hand. And the gospel is the message of that inheritance. That inheritance that is our redemption, that is our eternal life, that is our adoption as sons and daughters, that is our perfect and lasting freedom and our true hope. If you are in Christ today, your inheritance is secure. Take hold of it. Believe it. Rest in it. Live it. Tell others about it. Thank God for it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we are yours, that our inheritance is secure, that it's not based on our willpower, but that we are firmly held in your grip of grace, that nothing can snatch us away. So I pray today that we would be alert, that we would be on guard, that we would stay awake, that we would be aware of what is happening around us, not just to 
fight against sin, that's, that's incredibly important, Lord, and we need your help in that. But also, Lord, that we would be aware of the opportunities that we have to shine your light, to tell others of the gospel, the hope that we have. Help us to be ready for that, to be alert and awake, to give a reason for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, this is your work in us. We give you the glory and the praise for it. And we ask that you continue this work in our hearts and lives, giving us a confidence in Christ, not in ourselves, causing us to remember the gospel, especially when we're so prone to forget it. And Lord, giving us the deep rest that we need and the comfort of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.